Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Positively Trek is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, and Carl Morris. Visit patreon.com slash positivelytrek to help support the podcast. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, shout-outs, associate producer credits, and more. Thanks to all of you for your support. And now, let the show begin. Tabata, don't you like folks? Oh, I like them fine. But a computer takes less space. I've got my own system. Books, young man. Books, thousands of them. If time wasn't so important, I'd show you something. My library. Thousands of books. Well, here we are, folks, with another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club. I'm Dan Gunther. With me, as always, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, we're talking about a book today, but not the usual. We're going over to the comic side of things and talking about a graphic novel. So, are you ready for that? I am ready for a book with pictures. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Like, I mean, I know comics aren't for kids. That's, you know... These are these are adult Star Trek comics, but it just does feel nice to to read something with pictures. You know, it just makes me feel a little young again. I like it. Well, I'll give you an example why it's kind of nice, too, and especially when they work with the novels. And I know this isn't Star Trek, what I'm about to say, but I was on a podcast recently called Star Wars Bookworms, and there's the Star Wars The High Republic series going on. And I've read the first three novels And then I jumped to the comics because that's what we were reviewing on that episode. And it was nice to visually see these characters and these locations that I've been reading about in the novels. And it was just like, a oh, that, you know, that's that's how I pictured this or, oh, that character looks a little different than. But now I know, you know, so it's actually nice when you're building a universe in Star Trek like this that you can see how different things are depicted on the page in graphic form. And uh, we'll kind of touch on something in here a little later that I want to point out in the artist's choice for one of the characters. I feel like I know what that's going to be. So yeah, we'll stick a pin in that. I, I know what you're talking about. But speaking, I think I know what you're talking about, I should say. But speaking of, of the visual aspect of it, there's a number of things in these stories that make up what we're talking about. And I should say what we're talking about first, I guess. We are talking about the omnibus collection of Star Trek Year 5, Weaker Than Man. And this is an omnibus collection of issues 13 to 19 of Year 5. So they've broken this down into four episodes, they're calling them, because, of course, the conceit is this is Season 5 of the original Star Trek series. The way they've broken it down is interesting. And to link back to what I was saying earlier, there's a bunch of visual choices, I think, in most of these stories, anyway, that is served well by it being in comic form. So this first one, for example, Episode 7. Uh, Guide of Fire, it's called. And this is issues 13 and 14. If you're reading these as separate issues and not as the omnibus, they've put both of these issues together into one episode, one story. 
And uh, visually, I think there's some really interesting things in this one. <laughs> yes, there is. And I'll tell you why I'm laughing. Because on one of the first couple pages, there is the Enterprise returning back to Earth after its historic five-year mission. And when it returns, it has this big welcoming committee of at least 50 starships, if not more. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Like, they brought, like, the whole fleet in <laughs> to just see the Enterprise return. But then I thought, but then not that far after this, when V'ger comes to Earth, the Enterprise is the only starship within, uh, what is it, within... Uh, Interception range. Interception range, right. And it's like, oh, well, I guess it was more important for them to all be there for the Enterprise, but not to be there for V'ger. Okay, but just for the record, they're not at Earth in this, of course. They're at Starbase 212, which is on the Federation border. So they're not, they're headed home, but they're not there yet. Okay. But they've just gotten back to Federation space. I mean, like so. close is what I'm getting at. <laughs> I, I wonder how close they are to Earth, because presumably the Federation border is still pretty far from Earth, I would assume. But well, I guess, I guess my point is like there wouldn't be 50 plus starships in that area, though. And then you go to Earth and there's none around. There's not a freaking starship around earth though <laughs> that is weird i want to talk and this is one of those things visually i'm talking about as well i want to talk about this fleet because in the deep background you have very simple outlines of ships very you know you're not supposed to really look close at those they're very simple but in the foreground first of all in the foreground we have the federation starship theseus the flagship and around it there's a few recognizable ones. We have Soyuz-class ships like the Bozeman from Cause and Effect, but also a couple NX-class starships. So there's some really old workhorses in this fleet as well. Yeah, if they were retired, the NX-01 Enterprise, what, what are these others doing here? <laughs> I honestly think just filling up space on the page, but... You know, you didn't hear that from me. No, but I mean, you know, you could still have some in the fleet or some that aren't that active, but occasionally they take them out for a little joyride. So, yeah, we do get the Enterprise returning home to Federation space, like we said. And another visual aspect that kind of shows the passage of time here is we get the new uniforms, new in quote marks, the ones that we see in Star Trek, the motion picture, the pajama uniforms as they get derided quite often but it's kind of cool to see that contrasted with you know the bright primary colors of our classic tos uniforms that's a nitpick of mine is when you read a book or a comic that says oh i see you have the new uniforms oh yeah they look like pajamas i hate it when they say that and this one they don't say it but they say they changed them because the women demanded pants yeah i, lo I love that Ariel shaw makes that joke that like it was the women we wanted pants <laughs> i like to believe though there were always pants it's just women had a choice and when we watch the original series most of the time they decide not to yeah there are a couple times you see women wearing the pants in the original series though not just during pike's time but during the classic TOS era as well. So yeah, I like to think Uhura could have worn pants if she wanted to. So yeah, we get home and like we alluded to earlier, we meet Ariel Shaw, who you may remember from the TOS episode Court Martial. He, she was the attorney who prosecuted Kirk in that episode. And she's now become the attorney general of the Federation. And she kind of gives some intimations to Kirk that the political winds are shifting in the Federation. And we find out about 
a group called the Originalists, which I think is really interesting. Kind of a, I would say a populist movement concerned with like the founding members of the Federation and kind of insular and and turning inwards and not wanting to do exploration missions like the enterprise has been on, but really wanting to focus on, you know, the Federation first, right? Like the, the idea of the concerns of the main worlds of the Federation that are paramount. I like that they're not taking the position of this is a group that's just against all alien races and they just want it to be Earth. This is different because, like you said, they want to keep it to just kind of the original group of Federation members and not keep expanding out and adding more and more to it. They're not as racist as, you know, an Earth-only group would be. They, they like five or six, but beyond that you know, screw all of the rest of them. Right. There's only so many they can handle, I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately, it seems that they have a lot of support, though, which is kind of surprising because, you know, we think of the Federation as this kind of bastion of of liberal progressive ideas, but it seems that this is kind of coming in and taking over a little bit of the political thought. So I do like that a real kind of thinks like, oh, maybe Kirk should run for president. Yeah. And, you know, that made me think about Archer because Archer eventually becomes president of the Federation. Because my initial thought was, well, Kirk's, you know, captain of a starship. And then all of a sudden, what? He wants to be president of the Federation? Who does? Oh, wait. Archer eventually did that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, when it comes to the originalist, it, it's a bit interesting to me because that... It's the fear of what they've seen with the Romulans, what they've seen from the Klingons, and they're afraid the more they bring in, the more chances they are going to bring somebody in who isn't going to compromise and take over. And so there's all this fear. And in a lot of ways, Kirk being president could help to focus the Federation in continuing what their mission is and maybe fight the originalists, but he does not seem interested in that because he says he doesn't like politics, but yet he's always involved in politics. You know, and, and it actually makes sense. Like, it feels like it would probably be a good fit for him, really, because he's a diplomat, right? He's been on the front lines. He's done all of that kind of... He's determined the course of entire planets in his position as a captain of the of a starship, right? So, you know, it kind of makes sense. But yeah, he doesn't seem interested at all. But then I've been reading or rereading the Lost Years novels and Nagora keeps trying to get Kirk to do like PR things because of the public face he is for the Federation and for Starfleet. And so Kirk is the poster child for the Federation. And so in this reading this about possibly being a president, it would be good because he would have a, he has that great reputation by just finishing his five year mission. So he has all this PR around him. And so he's in the news. And so, yeah, if he wanted to run, there'd be a lot of people that'd be interested in voting for him. Yeah, definitely. And given the fact that the originalist originalist movement is a populist movement, it kind of makes sense to counter that with the Federation's poster boy, right? Like kind of their own popular candidate. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, but that all kind of gets cut short when one of the fears of the originalist movement come, shows up. The Klingons show up and demand Kirk be handed over the, to them to face trial for crimes committed during Star Trek, the original series, basically. Yeah. So the you know Klingons always have to show up at some point. That's just a Star Trek thing. 
Well, they want Kirk for his involvement specifically in incidents we've seen on Star Trek. So, for example, the interference with the Elan of Troyes and in Friday's Child with the Capellans and in The Trouble with Tribbles, releasing a biological menace. And, of course, for the whole Organian peace treaty, the whole peace treaty between the Klingons and the Federation. It's for these reasons that they want Kirk's head, basically. Right. So they're going to put him on trial, but not like in a court. It's their own version of a trial where they're putting him through trials, right, to show his worthiness. And really what they want to do is eventually try to kill him through all these little obstacle courses. But, you know, Kirk's too good for that. So, yeah, we, we see them uh, setting up for issue two by uh, setting up this trial. But meanwhile, McCoy and Spock are also kind of on the trail of their own little story over on the other side because the wounded crew members from the Enterprise are being transferred from McCoy's care over his protests. And Spock and McCoy kind of investigate this and find out that something untoward is happening on the medical ship Asclepius. So, yeah, this is an interesting part of the story that I'm wondering if you have thoughts about. Uh, yeah, I do, because, well, first of all, I like how they change uniforms into the new medical uniforms, seeing not just McCoy, but Spock in them. Because then throughout the other issues, they're back in the original uniforms. They don't just switch over to the new uniforms immediately. They're still in their old uniforms for the most part. But to find that there are crew people that are being experimented on and are not being healed, this does not seem like the kind of thing you'd see in Starfleet. It is supposed to save people and make them better, not make them worse and use them as guinea pigs. You know, it's one of those things, though, we see all the time in Star Trek. You know, the Federation of Starfleet, we're all so perfect, we're all so great, you know. But yet there's always a few of those ones that are so different from anybody else. You know, it's like there's somebody here that is experimenting with innocent people, and they're some of them are dying. And we find out that behind it all is this Admiral, Admiral Caraxi. You mean who, a Badmiral uh, now, right? A Badmiral. He is absolutely a Badmiral. He even dresses in an all-black uniform for the big reveal so that we know he's a bad guy. <laughs> Although I have to say that's a cool-looking uniform. Yeah, they're pretty sharp. I, I want to talk to their their uh, designers there. Very nice. They're like the motion picture uniforms, but just all black. Yeah, black pajamas. Getting into issue number two now is where we see all these kind of setups paying off here. And like you said, Kirk is facing this gauntlet. He's facing down the Klingons. And of course, he's pretty awesome. So he's coming out the other side, having proven his honor, basically, which I thought was an interesting way to go. And the argument he makes against this Klingon is, you know, I've made it through all these trials. If you kill me now, you've basically just assured me a place in Stovacor because I've shown to be honorable. And he's kind of appealing to the Klingon sense of honor this way, but he kind of says back to him, it's like, I don't really care about Stovacor. I just want to see you die. In that moment, Kirk learns everything he needs to know about this Klingon. Yeah. And this is pretty violent. You know, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of panels that look like they came right straight off the screen. By the way, you said it's issue two. It's the second issue in here, but it would be then what? Issue number 14 in the series. That's correct. Yes. I, I, you know, I didn't really care for this part that much. I think just because it just is just a Klingon beaten up on Kirk, 
or Klingons beating up on Kirk and he's fighting them. And I just wanted to kind of get through this. Yeah, like in the end, it didn't really seem to amount to too much that he's going through this gauntlet and facing down these trials. And, you know, it's interesting to kind of get into this Klingon's head a little bit. But at the same time, it just, yeah, it feels very much like, well, Kirk's going to survive because he's awesome. He doesn't even pull out some kind of crazy Kirk trick in the end. He just, I guess, is good enough to survive all these trials, even though we were assured at the beginning of this issue that even a Klingon couldn't possibly survive all of these things. So no lowly human is going to. But he just does because, again, he's Kirk. He's that good. He's Kirk. If he can take on a Gorn, he can take on the Klingons. Like I said, he learns about the Klingon. He learns that he has no honor, basically, and is able to kind of use use that against him in the end, which I did like that. I liked that they've got this warhead aboard their ship. They're going to blow it up and take out the entire fleet. But Kirk basically calls his bluff and says, we do a show of force and he'll turn and tuck tail and run because he's not going to sacrifice himself to complete his mission. And luckily he's right, but he it's because he learned that this Klingon just says the words, as he says, he doesn't actually believe in honor. Yeah. Again, I mean, that scene just didn't do a lot for me, but it's, it's okay. Well, like I said, that is the one part of the story that I really enjoyed. I, I liked that bit for sure. But to go over to the, the Spock and McCoy stuff, we learn, of course, this admiral, he's doing all these experiments. His goal is to find a cure to all known diseases and that sort of thing. The main takeaway from this story that I find is interesting, and again, kind of putting my mind in, in the fact that this is supposed to just be an episode. At first I was like, this wraps up really quickly. But then I was like, okay, if this is supposed to be an episode, that makes sense. You know, they kind of wrap up a bit quickly. But my main takeaway, my main point of interest here is when they overcome the admiral, in his in that office there and spock takes the admiral's head and smashes it into the wall very quickly overcoming him and we'll see this play out through the next few issues as well this is kind of the first sign here that something's not right with spock something's going on with him here yeah because his hand goes right to the admiral's head and spock is behind the admiral so he could have easily done the vulcan nerve pinch Exactly, yeah. He's just, I mean, the hand's right above the shoulder. So why didn't he do the Vulcan nerve pinch? So yeah, to your point, something's up with Spock. And it's been a while since I've read the previous issues. I I don't recall anything in those at the top of my head that would be like, oh, I bet I know what's affecting Spock. I just don't remember. I'm wondering, and I'm not sure. I don't know how this is all going to wrap up, but we know in Star Trek The Motion Picture... Spock goes to Vulcan to undergo the colonar, the purging of all of his remaining emotions. I'm wondering if something's happening here that leads to that decision. Because if you look at his face when he does this to the Admiral, Spock never looks like he's happy, but he looks decidedly angry in that moment. He looks like the last part of Star Trek Into Darkness, Spock. Yeah, or... Star Trek VI Spock when he slaps the phaser out of Valeris's hand. Ooh, yeah, that scene is intense. The other thing I really like from this bit here is the officer who walks in. McCoy just says to him, your boss is a traitor, son. Be real careful with your next choice. And he looks at everything that's happened in the room and says, how can I help? <laughs> like, So I, I love that it's this admiral, right? This admiral is 
where this is all coming from. It's not like there's this, I mean, there's people that are willing to go along with it and that sucks, but for the most part, the people that we interact with, it's not like this is a deep seated, deep rooted cancer within the Federation. It's this guy and who he's been able to kind of influence a bit. And we see it later too, when Shaw calls for his arrest and the captain of the Federation flagship says, yeah, the Admiral's not in charge of my ship. I am. What do you need me to do? I like that. Yeah, I do too. And I like this uh, officer, as you mentioned, because you expect them to say, you know, Hey, you know, be, be careful here, son. And him, him just holding a phaser on them but no he he puts it down how can i help it showed me that that he knows that this admiral probably was up to no good he either knew what the admiral was doing or he suspected something about him and could recognize right away that this was probably the right thing well that pretty much wraps up the first episode of this episode seven so what are your kind of thoughts on this i there were some issues i noticed you had with this story what did you think overall? Did you enjoy this one? I think I enjoyed the Spock and McCoy story and the beginning of the story about the originalists. I like that. The bad moral part was, you know, okay. It's just that um, what I really enjoyed was the story of what the bad moral was doing. Because in some ways, I understand why he's doing what he's doing. Because if you have ships going all throughout the universe and and who knows what they're contracting how are you going to know how to conquer all these different diseases and viruses that are going on unless you do some experimenting and so i can see where he's doing this and trying to protect people of the federation by having those answers but he's going the wrong way of doing it he's he's going about it all the wrong way and i like that kirk and spock i'm not kirk and spock but spock and mccoy had to deal with that issue i wasn't so big on the whole kirk fighting the klingons thing it just it just seemed a bit a little over the top for me so yeah i mean it was it was a good issue i'd give it like a c yeah my my opinions are kind of in line with yours as well i i really enjoyed the the spock and mccoy stuff the Kirk stuff, I enjoyed the ending of it. I liked the kind of calling the Klingons bluff thing. That feels to me like in Kirk's wheelhouse and that like, yeah, he would get that insight and he would know to do that. But the fighting through the gauntlet thing, I just got really tired of really fast, I think. I liked the kind of talking about the events of those episodes and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, it just got tiresome. It just seemed like Kirk's so awesome. He can defeat all the obstacles in his way and yeah he can break all his bones but he's still walking and fine apparently so yeah and i thought he was too quick to want to go over to the klingon ship too well moving on then to episode eight called vote mud and this is issues 15 and 16 so we're continuing the originalist storyline because the enterprise arrives at andoria under the orders of uriel shaw in order to conduct what she calls a threat assessment on an originalist candidate that they've kind of come up with. Spoiler, of course, we know who the candidate is because of the name of the story, but uh, yeah, we, we get an interesting choice when he brings bright eyes to the planet with him to check out the candidate, and Spock stays behind on the Enterprise as well. So uh, what did you think of that, first of all, bringing the Tholian passenger from the previous issues down to the planet? Well, it gives the character something to do in this issue, but 
I don't really know the purpose to when you get to the end of the story. Like, what did they have to really offer this in the story? Except for just asking questions. Why is this going on? Why is this happening? And Scotty explaining things. But they didn't really do much of anything. I'm not. It's not a complaint. I'm just. I like them being there. I just didn't see really the point when I got to the end of the story. Like, well, what was the point? Okay, because I think the point comes very early in the in the story, where they say like we're bringing bright eyes because they'll kind of challenge the ideas of the originalists that these strange, weird aliens have nothing to offer and are evil and bad and that kind of thing. So it's it's kind of like making them uncomfortable by showing them what they're what they believe is wrong kind of thing. That's kind of what I got from it. Well, I got that too, but then it just it there was no there, nothing happened after that. From like I thought, okay, well that's going to show the Andorians like that's going to play out in some way and it just didn't. It was more like it, it was like it felt like it was setting up something that then didn't pan out to me. Okay. I also wonder if it might be setting up something in that Bright Eyes learned a lot about how things work in their society and stuff here. And I mean, that doesn't come into play in any of the stories in this, but I'm wondering if going forward, it might be something that is used with their character. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm expecting. There's some other hints about the Tholians in later issues. So... I think for the long game, it might prove out. But for this issue, to me, it didn't, the resolution wasn't there. But I mean, I'm not, again, it's not a complaint. It was just that Bright Eyes is there. And I understand why they took Bright Eyes, but then Bright Eyes is just there. Well, of course, like we said, the candidate that they've come up with is Harcourt Fenton Mud. And I think visually, this is kind of. I'm assuming what you were alluding to earlier. Yes. The character model they've used for Mud, I would say is more Rain Wilson-ish than Roger C. Carmel-ish. Yeah, they, they've kind of carried that look over. They've given him the full beard. They've given him the uh, the attire of the Roger C. Carmel version as last we saw him in I, Mud. But he's definitely more svelte. And uh, if we're going from the last time we saw him, he's regrown hair over the bald part of his head. So, you know, congratulations to him. That's pretty cool. Or it's a toupee that Kirk gave him. That could very well be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I kind of like that they use more of the Rain Wilson look. Like you said, it's like a combination of the two, but definitely more in the Rain Wilson side of things. But I, I just, just thought that was a little fun to see it that way. So I like that. This story is interesting. We kind of get that surprise reveal and, and all of this stuff that the originalists are looking to elect a populist candidate who's kind of a con man, a career criminal, uh, who has supposedly reformed his ways and that sort of thing. So some interesting stuff that's, I don't know, trying to parallel real world stuff and that sort of thing. I'm not going to get too much into that here, but I definitely got that Harry Mudd could very well have been a reality show host at some point. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But I, I definitely got some vibes that like, they're trying to be a little relevant with the story, I think. Well, it's weird too, that the Andorians would choose him to run for president. You know, I mean, we're talking earlier about, well, you know, Kirk, could we see him as a president? Sure. 
And here we are, like everybody's behind Harry Mudd to be president. <laughs> you know, the Andorians are. But uh, it, it's interesting, too, that he wants to be president because he just sees it as an, another opportunity. You know, it's he's always up to no good. He's always trying to get his way. There, there's There's always a deal to be made from this. It's not just as plain and simple as he just wants to help the Federation. There's always something in it for himself. And like you said, he's in it for himself. He doesn't want to be a public servant, you know, and that's what someone who chooses a life of government, supposedly that's what they want is to serve the public. I mean, whether or not that works out and is true most of the time, I'm not going to comment on, but it's very clear that that's not what he's after. He's there for personal enrichment. And by the end of the story, we see he's kind of just trying to see what all he can get out of it and get for himself kind of thing. But I think the analysis of the originalists' motives for choosing him as a candidate is really interesting because we do get that where they speculate that they see Harry Mudd as a puppet that they can control, that, you know, they're they're hitching their star to this candidate, but they'll be doing the the real work in the background, using him to get what they want. But as they point out, that's a dangerous game because Harry Mudd himself isn't as dumb as he looks. He is a con man and you don't try to con a con man, right? You know, that's kind of what they, what they say here. And I think that's very true. I think that's a really interesting analysis. And again, feels really familiar when certain political groups will get behind a candidate because they think they can control them. I've seen that in local government where I live and that sort of thing where, you know, we want to get our picks onto a court or we want to get these laws that will benefit us passed. We don't care about the chaos that this crazy candidate will cause. That's kind of bonus. That's But we'll get what we want behind the scenes kind of thing. And I think that's what they're going for here. But Harry is a dangerous one to try and do that with. It's like having a political party and they their candidate just represents what they want and how they're going to control that candidate in it. And that candidate's going to, you know, also do what they think that their party wants from them. But but yeah, this is this is a little different because it is Harry Mudd. What I found interesting as I was reading this the first time, because I've read this more than once, is that the Enduring Campaign Chief of Staff is the one who's really positioning Harry Mudd. And I kept thinking, why is she even bothering? Why doesn't she just run? Why even write, Why even try to manage and control him as a puppet when she could just do her own thing and, and run as president? And then at the end of the issue or this episode, that's what is suggested that she does by someone who appears later, which we'll talk about. But I thought all along, well, that's what I kept thinking throughout. Why is she even bothering with this guy? You know, <laughs> like she could just run herself. But so I don't know why she didn't think she could. But I, I really thought also that when Kirk found out that Harry Mudd was running for president, I half expected Kirk to say, well, damn it. I am going to run now because I have to beat Harry. Yeah, that would that would be interesting. Have those two on the ballot. I don't know what the debates would look like. That would be a fun issue right there. Let's talk about this mysterious person you've alluded to then, because I think this is probably right at the end of issue 15. That is correct. Gary Seven shows up, the temporal agent of the Aegis who we met in Assignment Earth and who's been in a few of the year five stories up to now. And he presents himself as a concerned citizen 
with questions about Mudd's campaign. And yeah, it seems he's, he says things along the lines of my plans can benefit from chaos and you seem to be an agent of chaos. Let's see how good you are at that. I, he's kind of on board with Mudd's candidacy here. And yeah, this seems very nefarious. If you had never read these comics before and I said to you that Gary Seven and Harry Mudd would be on the same side, would you believe that? Hmm, I I don't know. I would assume there's some reason because they manipulate time that there's some kind of end goal that we don't know about that he would be working towards. And I would assume that it was like a temporary alliance that would be broken off when we found out what Gary Seven was doing and it was going to be something in the service of the greater good. But having read these comics, that not really the case or or his greater good as we'll find out in a different issue is not what we would consider the greater good even though he does or his his group does but yeah i would assume it was just a temporary alliance of convenience if that makes sense yeah because that to me is the strong suit of this comic series of year five is what's going on with gary seven and Isis, and then how some of that connects to the Tholians. So I would always expect Gary Seven to show up in a comic and pal around with Kirk, <laughs> you know, I mean, join forces or whatever, but it seems to be the opposite of that in these comics. We've seen Gary Seven and Isis attack Kirk and his crew. It's like they're enemies, they're against each other. And now when we see Harry Mudd running for president and Gary Seven shows up and is supporting him and trying to help him, because whatever Harry Mudd's trying to achieve is going to help Gary Seven achieve his objective. And you have to sit here and wonder, like, what the heck is going on here? Why would this even happen? And that's so intriguing to me. And when we do get to the next episode or issue, we get some answers behind that, which, of course, we'll touch on here shortly. But I really enjoy this aspect of not just this issue, but this whole storyline in year five. Yeah, definitely. Because I was I was thinking back to the original episode Assignment Earth, and when we first meet Gary Seven and his only like canon appearance, he is fighting the Enterprise crew for the entire episode. They're fighting each other until the last five minutes. And then they realize, oh, our goals are the same, we're gonna be pals. So that tells me that Gary Seven will align with you if your goals are the same. But if they're not, he will be the most tenacious enemy you could possibly have. And what's interesting is in that episode, they were enemies because of a lack of information, because they didn't know what the other side was trying to do, so they had to be cautious and play it safe. In this case, Gary Seven is holding all the cards, and he seems to know everything, and he's still the enemy of the Enterprise, which is very intriguing. Right, because as you said, at the end of that episode, now they know each other and they know they have the same goals. So what's happening now? Why aren't they on the same page? This particular episode, going back to Harry Mudd, it kind of ends with uh, Harry Mudd trying to flee the planet with all their military secrets and all that sort of stuff. He's dropping out of the campaign and just going to try and get all the information he can. He's kind of caught in the act thanks to Thankfully, a neck pinch by Spock this time rather than a head smash. Uh, although that, you know, I don't, I know some people that wouldn't have been too sad about that, but <laughs> that anyway. That would be interesting, yeah. 
Harry Mudd's out of the picture once again. And like you said, Gary Seven shows up and convinces this chief of staff, Andorian, that she should run for president in, in his stead. So I think this is a character we'll see again in a future story, not in this omnibus, but in future episodes of year five, I'm assuming. This omnibus is volume three, and the series ends, I think, with, and, and this volume ends with 19, issue 19. But then uh, the whole series, I think, ends with number 25, and then there's like a bonus issue or something that comes after. So anyway, my point is, it sounds like this is the second to the last omnibus. So whatever's happening in here will all probably be resolved in the last omnibus. So what are your final thoughts on the uh, second episode in here, episode eight, Vote Mud. I would say I probably like this a little better than episode seven. The reveal of Harry Mudd running for president was interesting to me and where the Endorians, where their position is with the originalist and with the Federation and then with the with Gary Seven showing up, creating a bit more of a mystery of things. Yeah, I enjoyed this one as well. I thought it was fun to see Mudd. I like that they incorporated the kind of new version of mud into this character and the fact that he has so much more history now thanks to discovery i think that's interesting to kind of reconcile those two characters a bit and and see that play out here anytime mud versus kirk i mean that's always fun i also like that scotty got some stuff to do here i think that was interesting as well yeah i like it when sky gets clobbered by the android that, I like <laughs> that, that, part. that was a lot of fun yeah that, and great art in that moment too. Just the like straight arm out and Scotty just goes flying backwards. That was great. So moving on to episode nine, Weaker Than Man. And this one is made up of just one issue, issue number 17. And I don't know how you feel about this one, but this one to me is the most interesting one. I, I don't know about any, about other adjectives to use, but interesting definitely comes to mind. This one, the art is done by J.K. Woodward. So it's that that painted style that I personally love. And this one takes place entirely from the perspective of Gary Seven, who we see at the beginning here as 35-year-old Caleb Howell. He's been living in this community uh, created by the Aegis. He's the product of, of centuries, millennia of breeding, basically, to create perfect humans as we kind of all learned from Assignment Earth and they get assigned as agents and all this stuff. And he gets the position of supervisor from the Aegis. And we learn here that supervisors are very rare. They're like uber great, wonderful people, like the best of the best kind of thing. Yeah, this was really interesting. What did you think of this whole setup here, see, seeing things from his perspective? I found it interesting. I would say that I like this. This one is the best in the omnibus for me because it adds so much to the Gary Seven character. It's one of these issues where I have to stop and think for a moment or even go back and want to reread it because I like how he's Gary Seven, but he's replacing Gary Six. You know, I like that whole setup that there's been these different Garys and now he's the seventh one. I'm curious what you think about the fact that he's out for a jog. He's obviously in modern times in the 20th century. And it's as if he's been living a normal life on Earth waiting for this moment, waiting for his calling. 
Yeah, it's it's a fun insight fun. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's it's a really interesting insight into that whole mythology of the Aegis. And I love that, you know, they've taken just a few lines from Assignment Earth and created this kind of scenario here. We get this one panel here, and I, I love this, and it's showing the different supervisors of a bunch of different species all kind of going on to their assignments. And we see a, a Klingon, an Andorian, a Kazon, a Vulcan, a Cardassian, and a Tamarian, the metaphor people from TNG. That Cardassian sure looks a heck of a lot like Garrick. I was like, conspiracy theory wise, is Garrick? No, that they just used him as a as a model, I think. But man, I was like, that's that's just Garrick. <laughs> yeah, he looks like a kind of little pissed off Garrick in a way. <laughs> and I like that they all have their their little shapeshifter animals with them as well. I guess and. Uh, the kind of cool lizard thing that Ger- that Garrick, I say Garrick, that that Cardassian has there. But that's what's cool about this is that it's really giving us depth into Gary Seven and uh, this whole operation that he's a part of, and wh- who Isis is, and and how everybody has these shapeshifter, shapeshifting animals or pets or partners or whatever with them. I mean, a lot of ways. Didn't you think about? Men in Black. I kept thinking this felt very Men in Black to me. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I I think that's an interesting parallel for sure. There's something else it definitely reminds me of that I just can't think of at the moment, but it had a very familiar feeling here as well. What's interesting to me here is we learn that he's upgraded as well. So he's basically given immortality at this point they say that he will be kind of locked in this form a 35 year old version of himself for ever as long as he lives and and where do i sign up he's basically indestructible right yeah that would be pretty cool you say where do i sign up and i'm kind of with you on that until we find out what the grand plan is what the plan of all of them is because this was interesting to me that it turns out that they want to make perfect galaxies. That's kind of their their end goal. And they've determined that for the Milky Way galaxy to be perfect, as they say, they have to eliminate humanity and basically everyone else except the Tholians because the Tholians are not interested in expansion. They'll just be like the the masters of this perfect galaxy, which, you know, I would love to be perpetually 35, but I don't know if I could undertake that mission. <laughs> yeah. I don't want the mission. I just want the whole not aging piece and all that. Yeah. Cause we see scenes of Gary seven saving humanity, doing things in on earth in different time periods. So he's obviously going through history. Which is interesting to me, too, because if there were different Garys before him, wouldn't they have done these? I I guess what I'm trying to figure out is if you're going back into the past and you're changing something or steering something in one direction, is it that it changes the timeline and then you you do something else to help humanity in the future and then you realize in order for this to work you have to go back into another period of the past and do another steering thing anyway that gets a bit complicated but my point is i, I kind of, i'm kind of like gary when isis is saying you know 
humanity needs to be destroyed. It's like, well, then why has he been spending all this time saving humanity just to turn around and destroy it? And all I kept thinking is, well, I don't think that they saw this as being that humanity was going to destroy things later, that they were trying to save humanity from itself to the point that they realized that what happened is now humanity is a threat to others. And so if humanity is a threat to others by getting in wars and those others are also causing wars, then we need to get rid of them to save the Milky Way. And there's some technology or something with the Tholians that's going to help with this. I do like that Gary also asks that question, like, why have I been doing all this to save them if this is the end goal? We're just going to eliminate them. Part of me in the back of my mind is also thinking the only person we ever hear this from is Isis. Isis is the entirety of the representation that we see of the Aegis to Gary. And we also find out that Isis was the same person as the person who recruited him way back when as well. So I'm wondering, is this an Aegis thing? Is this what the plan is? Or has she co-opted this and she's working by herself using Gary to do this? I don't know for sure, but if we go to like to the next episode, we see she's vicious, right? Like she is being very cruel and saying she wants revenge and that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if this is, this is all just speculation. I'm wondering if this is something that she's come up with and she's just convinced Gary that this was the plan and it's not actually supposed to be the plan. Well, cause yeah, he's not, he's not going to destroy humanity. We know that's not going to happen. So somehow, some way or whatever, he is prevented from doing it or he changes his mind. And then we find out that humanity lives on and doesn't destroy the Milky Way. So all this for nothing. Like I, and to your point, I can see, yeah, is Isis just the baddie in this? Is the, is the bad moral in this storyline? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, definitely she's vicious for sure. She's determined to make this happen, but I'm not, I'm not sure yet. I don't know. That's just my hypothesis. That's my my guess for what's going to happen. But but the question is why, right? Why would she do this? I don't know. Yeah. She says something about revenge in the next story. And I'm like, revenge? What did, what did they do to you? Like, So there's some untold part of that story there, I think, that we're going to get in issues 20 and beyond. So yeah, what, what are your, any final thoughts for this particular one? Dude. As much as we talked about this, there's a lot here, okay? This, to me, is some of the best Gary Seven storyline I've ever read because I've read, you know, the novels and other comics that involve Gary Seven, which are really good. A lot of them are really good. But this gives us some really deep information and backstory on him and ISIS and everything, and I just, I thought this was really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one as well. For one thing, it's beautiful. Like, I just, I can never get enough of J.K. Woodward's artwork. And yeah, for another part, I love that we stick with this perspective the whole time and really, like you said, dig in deep with Gary Seven's backstory and, and where he's coming from. And, you know, finally, a little bit of understanding as to why he's doing what he's doing. You know, we may not agree with, obviously, 
why he's doing it and, and the motivations there. But now we kind of get a bit of insight into why he's acting the way he's acting at least. So yeah, I really, really loved this one. I want more of this. Yeah. Agreed for sure. Well, and we got other characters there, you know, that are like him that we could follow that are agents, you know, different speed with the, like the Garrick. Why can't we have the Garrick seven comic? Well, we won't get that in the next couple issues, which make up episode 10, which is called on the death of a friend. And this is made up of issues 18 and 19. I'll give you just the brief rundown. They get a distress call from Proxima Centauri, which is the, the human colony at, at Alpha Centauri. And there's some sort of disease that's killing everybody. And there, there's a worldwide pandemic. And I'm thinking, okay, a couple stories ago, we had the, you know, big politics, disruptive game changer person running for president. And in this one, we have the worldwide pandemic that's killing millions of people. And I come to Star Trek comics to escape real life. And why do they just keep throwing? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some parallels here that were noticed because of course it's a big uh, virus story. So getting that out of the way, I just wanted to mention that because I'm sure a lot of people reading this, that was in the back of their mind. Oh yeah. That was in the back of my mind, but I really enjoyed this story. I would say this is my second favorite of the four that's in here. And I think one reason is because we do get ISIS in here, which we'll talk about, but this whole pandemic thing that's going on maybe doesn't interest me all that much, but it was just what McCoy was doing. I found really interesting his motivation, his, you know, having to save lives and his environmental suit, you know, has a rip in it or whatever, and he's compromised and he may have the disease or whatever, but he figures out that he doesn't. And it may be because he's human and maybe humans can't get it. And then he just pulls off the suit and, you know, Kirk's like, you know, bones, what are you doing? He's like, I'm saving lives. Like it's so, it's so bones, you know, this whole thing is so bones and he's sacrificing himself, but his knowledge that he knows really what's going on, that he knows the risk isn't much of a risk, you know, even though others think it is. And I just love the whole McCoy aspect of the story. Yeah. So McCoy to me is just the heart, the humanity of Star Trek made manifest. And that really comes across in this story. I love seeing how much he cares. You know, that this is why he became a doctor. He's so invested in saving lives and that sort of thing. And we really see that play out in this one. The other aspect that comes into the story a bit is, again, Spock and he and McCoy are arguing more vociferously than usual, although it's hard to tell at first because they have some pretty big arguments before, but to the point where Kirk has to separate them a couple times because they're getting just so over the top here. So what is going on with Spock? You know, and this is still, we're not really getting that answered here, but that definitely comes into play in the story a bit. Yeah. They don't play up the Spock thing as much like the other. I mean, he's not bashing anybody's head. He just seems like a little, maybe a bit aggravated Spock in here. Yeah. Again, I I just like want to go back to all the previous issues and go, aha, there's something that happened to Spock. That's what's causing it. Or maybe there wasn't anything like that, but I do want to know. No, wait, hold on. Let me just throw this though out there real quick. Could Spock's emotional angriness or the way he's acting, could it relate to the whole Gary Seven Isis thing in some way? Is there some connection there? I I haven't thought about it, but I'm just wondering now because 
in a sense, Gary Seven seems a bit out of character for me, but it's not that he's out of character, but he's just doing things different than I expected because of the situations. And now Spock is acting different. Like, is there something in this situation that Spock's being played into? We learned in the last story that Isis has some sort of control or hold over Gary, right? Because he says, like, what are you doing to me? And she says, I'm just doing what I always do, right? I'm I'm focusing your resolve and, and calming you down kind of thing. So, you know, she has that effect on Gary. Are, are you saying that maybe she's doing something to Spock as well? I don't know. That seems like a bit of a stretch. I mean, my mind's going a mile a minute now. It's like, well, she can change into animals. Could she change into Spock? And that's really a past or future Isis as Spock of some kind or something? Interesting. Well, speaking of Isis, she does play a pretty big role in this story. She's uh, infiltrated the Enterprise, and it's clear that what's happening on the planet might have been set off by her or started by her. It seems interestingly, Gary isn't really around. This seems to be just ISIS unless I missed something. I don't think Gary's around. I think it's just ISIS. Yeah. And that's interesting because we've never seen that with her acting independently of Gary seven. So yeah, she seems to be kind of behind what's happening on the planet uh, she's also on the Enterprise, wreaking havoc. Chekhov and Sulu manage to subdue her a couple times and, and try to question her, but she turns into a big hulking Tholian and they manage to overcome her, her again here and, and seem to kill her. Yeah, as she kills other crew people. Yeah, very viciously too. And this is where she talks about wanting to take revenge. When when she's on the planet, she sees Kirk. She says something about wanting to take revenge. And that's what really has me questioning, like, what's going on here? Like the Aegis don't seem to be like they're motivated by revenge. But Isis clearly is. So yeah, I'm really wondering what the motivation there is. I feel like there's clues there that we're just missing. Because we haven't really maybe spent the time to really go back and read things and relook at things. And now I want to do that. I wish we had done that before the show. <laughs> you know? Because what is the revenge? Is this something we're just going to find out at the end of these issues, this whole storyline through year five? Or were the clues there all along? So that's my assumption, is that it, it's something we'll find out by the end of the story. Because there's still quite a bit of story to go. And I feel like this is kind of the main thrust of the whole like this has been a running thing since the early issues right so i feel like the resolution to this is going to answer a lot of questions for sure the revenge is against humanity so what did humanity do that isis needs to have revenge on humanity even though isis has been helping gary seven save humanity for the longest time see now i don't i don't necessarily buy that argument i don't know if it's against humanity i think it might be against kirk right because isis says you have to eliminate kirk that's the whole mission you know and when she sees kirk she says it's time to take revenge she glares at kirk right so is it against all of humanity if it was the aegis i would say yeah it's against humanity but if it's just isis there seems to be something with kirk okay specifically so then why then what's the what what did kirk do to isis for revenge. I don't know. That That's what I'm waiting to find right? out. Yeah. But I don't recall anything in the past issues unless Kirk did something to something else that ISIS is connected to. Yeah. Which is why I'm saying the answer will probably be in a future issue, not in a past issue. I know. 
But see, I want it to be in a past issue. I want it to be where we go, <laughs> oh, that's what it, now I see where it connects. Like, I want that, you know? Yeah. Well, I want it to be in a past issue too, because then I'd know. <laughs> and I don't know right now, but yeah. I th- I just hope that they were smart enough that it's it's there. We just, why didn't we see it? They were they were very good at covering it up is what I'm getting at. that. And then when it's revealed, we'll be like, wow, okay, now it all makes sense. But then again, it's like, why is she having such a hard time getting to Kirk and why does she need Gary Seven? I feel like she could get Kirk just in the, like she just can appear at certain places. She could just go in his cabin and kill him in his sleep. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if maybe that would just be undone by the Aegis, but then why wouldn't it be if Gary does it? I don't know. Yeah. I'm hoping these are all answers we get. Like, again, we don't know the end of the story yet. So I, I think these are interesting setups for what's to come. Yes. Come so. on, IDW. Let us know what's going on. Well, I'm sure we will in <laughs> one of the <laughs> upcoming stories. Yeah, but I don't want to wait. <laughs> They've been taken till issue 20 got delayed and now we're waiting for 20. I need to know. Hurry up. You, you know, it's going to take us to the end of the year. I'm I'm good with that. I want lots of stories stretched out forever. I yeah. know, but I just want answers <laughs> now. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, we don't get them in this these issues, but we do get McCoy solving the uh, the issue with the virus, finding out that human antibodies are what takes it out because they're they're kind of cousin species of the Centauri. They've they split off and they became their own species kind of thing. And McCoy manages to cure everybody. But on the planet, they find this mysterious device that was at the epicenter of the outbreak. And they don't know if it's like a secondary device or something like that. Spock has it beamed into space and they put a warning buoy near it to kind of warn people away. I was surprised there wasn't kind of more explanation about what that was about. So I'm wondering, is that going to come into play in a future episode or like, what was that about? I don't know. When I, I saw that too, I thought, okay, it's one thing just to put this unknown object into space, but that's got to come into play later too. Cause we got to know what that is. I'm curious, but like, is it in orbit of Centauri? Like, where is it now? Like, will they come back to it? I, that's one thing I'm just like, that seemed to really not, play out and i'm assuming there's going to be something in the future about it so is isis dead i don't know (laughs) she seems to be dead right yeah because now my brain is going a mile a minute and now i'm thinking when we get to the end of the series kirk does something to a past isis and what we're seeing is a future isis coming in the past for her revenge for something that kirk will do later Yeah, I don't know, because the last time we see her, she's not dead yet, but definitely seems to be dying. She's mentioned as having died, I think, but we don't see her. So I I don't know. I don't know. I hope not. Like, I hope there's more to this, and I'm sure there will be. So any final thoughts for uh, this last episode of this Omnibus Edition? As I said, I like the McCoy storyline. Just, you know, him being the hero. And the damn it, Jim, I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, I'm here to save lives. And then Isis turning into a Tholian, the mystery of Isis. So, yeah, this would be, I would say this episode is my second favorite in the Omnibus. The one about Gary Seven was my first. The second episode in here, which was that episode eight, I would say that's my third favorite. And then episode seven was my fourth. I think mine's pretty close. I would, for myself personally, switch this one with the Harry Mudd one. 
I liked the Harry Mudd one a little bit better than this one, but I did enjoy this one as well. They're all pretty high up there, but that Gary Seven one is just so good. I really, really enjoyed that. So we're in total agreement on that one. So I don't know what else there is to say about this. I'm I'm eagerly awaiting the the rest of this story because uh, it's been very, very good storytelling up to this point. I am so tempted to go back and reread all the previous issues because I'm look. I want to be Sherlock Holmes and figure out the mystery, see if the hints are there. Well, maybe if you do do that before our next book club, we can do just a quick like. So what'd you learn? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, uh, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> Life gets in the way sometimes. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, when life is getting in the way and uh, you're not recording book club episodes here on Positively Trek, where can we find you? I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and I'm occasionally on the Star Wars report. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm on a recent episode of Star Wars Bookworms, talking about the first five issues of Star Wars The High Republic. I was on an episode recently of The Expanse, which is a Star Trek Enterprise podcast, and we talked about the season three episode, Rajine, and then I've been occasionally on Literary Treks, and I don't know where I'm going to be next, but I'm going on vacation next week, so that's where I'm going to be. Oh, that's exciting. I'm I'm incredibly jealous. I would love to be able to go on vacation, but uh, I'm not on vacation and won't be. So I'll be near my computer and near my phone where you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on Instagram, Kurtrats47 and YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And of course, I have my website, treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And on our next book club, what are we going to read, Dan? Oh, I'm excited for this one. We have another new release in our next episode, Star Trek, the original series novel, Living Memory by Christopher L. Bennett. So definitely looking forward to that one. I think it's going to be a fun discussion. Hope you will all join us for that. In the meantime, we have a couple more flagship shows before then and some exciting things coming up for those as well, which uh, will be revealed to you as soon as we learn what we're doing for those episodes. So thank you all so much for listening. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Positively Trek. Email us, PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters for all of your help. Really could not do it without you. Thank you so very much. Until next time, as always, stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.